Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Smaller companies look much better value than the giants of the S&P 500. Yet despite attractive prices, small cap indices continue to get cheaper, further widening the gap. Is bigger really better? I want to know why small caps are struggling to gain momentum. And in today's dumb question of the week, how big can one company grow? Okay, let's get into it. So by some measures, over the last 20 years, large caps have outperformed small caps by a greater amount than any other time in the historical record, other than perhaps the period up to 1999. So small caps have really had a tough time of it, and they do look cheap by a lot of measures. And I know you've been living this, Romin, haven't you? You invested in small caps because you thought, yeah, they look so cheap. They've got to start doing well soon. Yeah, cheap and now cheaper. So that, that, was, uh, that was unexpected. But look, I knew it was going to be a rough ride. Whenever you buy small caps, it's going to be a rough ride because they are very volatile. Plus, they come with their own problems because if they're small, they've got weak balance sheets, usually, not always. That also means that if there's bad economic weather, they may have trouble weathering it. So that could be high inflation. It could be higher interest rates or it could be weaker growth. Any of those are going to weigh on their profits. And because they've got such little in terms of reserves relative to mega caps, they will probably suffer the most. But is it the case that if we look back over the long term, the very long term, small caps generally do better than large caps? Because I know it is one of the factors, isn't it, that Farmer and French reference size? Yeah, that's one of the first ones that was discovered, one of the first factors that was described. It's something that's been pretty robust long term. However, some people think that it is fading or perhaps it's just expressing itself in a new way, which is illiquidity. Because what you usually find is that with small companies, the price between buying and selling, the bid offer spread is bigger and illiquidity comes with a premium. The risk premium is higher. The return is higher to compensate you for that illiquidity. At least that's the idea. So when we say small caps potentially look cheap at the moment, and here we're really referring to US small caps because the data is so robust there, what is it that we're looking at? And what is it that you saw? Well, what I saw was actually on a call with a client because we were looking at one of the PDFs from Yardani, which was really a nice one because it breaks down the US market into three different groups, large caps, mid caps and small caps. This is the funny thing about your power hours. People think you're teaching them, but really you're just gleaning all this information for your own portfolio. (laughs) Well, look, I mean, that's how everybody learns. It's by talking to people and interacting with people. And it forces me to look at things I wouldn't normally look at because everyone's got their own kind of interests. And so you said to the client, hang on a minute, I just need to write something down here. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was just gobsmacked and I kind of reacted that way with the client. But if you look at this valuation right now, you can see the S&P 500, that's the large caps in the US, that's on a multiple of just under 18 times forward earnings. Mid caps are on 13.2 times and small caps, that's the S&P 600, is at 12.3 times. It's quite a difference, isn't it? So large caps, the S&P 500, 18, and small caps, just over 12. So you might be thinking, well, maybe small caps are always cheap. You know, people are more excited by recognisable names on the stock market. Small caps tend to be companies you've never heard of. So maybe the recognition pushes up valuation. But even if you compare the S&P 600 with its own history, 
you can see that it is looking very cheap at the moment. And I can see that for long periods of time, the valuations for small and mid caps are actually above the S&P 500. So from a period of around 2008 to 2018, it was the large caps that were cheaper on a forward price to earnings basis. Yes, it's not always true that small caps or large caps are cheaper than one another. But if you compare the S&P 600 with its own history right now, it's not kind of 2008 cheap. That would have been a multiple of about eight times. But still, compared to its own history, very cheap. I'd say that's in the bottom 20th percentile. So it's only been cheaper about 10, 20% of the time. And so you looked at this and thought, hmm, I'm a fan of mean reversion. And if that kicks in here, hey, hey, we're quids in. So it's not enough to be a mean reversion believer. You also have to be a patient mean reversion believer. And I guess it works both ways, doesn't it? So we said the S&P 500 is 18 times on a forward price to earnings basis. If you just look at the subsection, which you might call the mega cap eight, which is primarily tech stocks, you know, it's Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Meta, Microsoft, Netflix, Nvidia, and Tesla, the names we've all heard of, their valuation is 26.5 on average. So if you're a fan of mean reversion, they don't look so attractive, do they? It really depends on whether they manage to deliver on their forward profits and whether they carry on delivering, because if they don't, there's going to be a reckoning. But I think also any kind of narrative you get in the stock market will always be around those very familiar names. There won't be people talking about small caps because there are so many of them that would be much more difficult to convey in a short news story or a podcast. Some people say that small caps is where you can go fishing as an active manager, that there might be inefficiencies that creep in because there are less analysts forecasting the profits for small caps. As you say, they're in the news less often. So maybe you can find bargains there. I don't know if that plays out in the stats. I think it's hard for any active manager to outperform, regardless of what style they're going for. Yeah, some of them just couldn't buy some of these stocks because to have a meaningful position, they'd own the whole company. And of course, Warren Buffett does that. He does buy whole companies. But that's very unusual for an active fund manager. So really, if you can't build up a meaningful position in it, well, it just kind of slips off your radar. You're not really interested in those stocks. There's a nice graph from Yardani which shows effectively the differential in the P.E. ratios between the S&P 500 and the small cap S&P 600. And just looking back, I think you have to go back to around the year 2000 to find it when large caps were so much more valued than small caps. Yeah, it's a pretty unusual position that we find ourselves in. So I just thought, well, when something's this extreme, it usually does mean that there will be some kind of mean reversion. I guess it doesn't necessarily mean that small caps will soar upwards. It could be that that differential compresses because large caps have a big crash. Yeah, could be. That could be the thing that makes it revert. However, because the mean reversion usually happens for the valuation of small caps or any other slice of the market, there will be some kind of rally that puts it back into line with its profits. Or, worst case, profits really disappoint. And that's how you normalise the price to earnings multiple. Of course, I don't want that to happen. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's interesting if you look at the graph of forward earnings and how analyst forecasts have changed over time. They have been coming down since 2022 for the small cap indices. I think it's true for all slices of the market, but especially for small caps. Yeah, those hairy graphs, as they're called. I like those because they just show you the, the kind of optimism initially and then it kind of fades. 
I think we're probably at peak pessimism right now. But if things do improve, then yeah, I expect sentiment would improve as well. Some people say that when it comes to small caps, maybe the forward price to earnings ratio is not so meaningful as it is for large caps, partly because, yeah, you've got fewer analysts forecasting it. So maybe those profit forecasts aren't so reliable. And also small caps earnings are way more volatile, presumably, than the large caps. Yep, completely. And so are their prices. Those two facts aren't completely unrelated. One of the reasons for volatility is because you get more shocks with small caps. Something bad happens, there's a bad news story, and it's going to affect their price much more than it would for a mega cap, probably. So I've heard it said that maybe it's better to look at the price to book ratio for small caps, particularly when it comes to the Russell 2000. And that's because there's just so many unprofitable companies in the Russell 2000 that forward price to earnings is not necessarily going to capture that. So if you look at the price to book multiple for the Russell 2000 index, it's fallen 16% since the start of the summer. And now it's at just 1.8, which is in the bottom 20% of its range since 1995. So again, by this measure, it looks like small caps are cheap. All I'd say is that the reason why I chose the S&P 600 was because it has a filter for profitability. To be incorporated in the S&P 600, you have to be profitable. Whereas for the Russell 2000, you have a lot of these companies which are not profitable. Yeah, and it is quite stark for the Russell 2000. One in three companies in that index is unprofitable. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) that wouldn't be great, would it? Well, but I guess that's why small caps sometimes outperform, right? It's because you look at these, you think, well, why am I going to buy that company? But it could turn out to be a really high growth company. Some of those are going to be the needles in the haystack. I mean, you think of Amazon, right? Which started off obviously in Jeff Bezos' sort of cupboard and was unprofitable for 20 years, like well into its maturity and is now in the top 10 companies in the world. But Amazon is very, very rare. Yeah, I think the the odds of finding the next Amazon are so low. But still, if you choose one of these indices, there will be at least a couple of Amazons in there. But I think I agree with you that the S&P 600 instinctively feels more attractive to me because of that kind of quality filter, almost. I think the point is that it's volatile enough. And at what point do you want to buy these growth companies? Do you want to buy it before they're profitable or while they're kind of on the way upwards? And I think I'd prefer to have a less risky position, which is to buy them on the way up. And it's not just profitability that the S&P 600 filters on. So there's also a liquidity filter where there must be an annual trading turnover of at least 100% of the shares outstanding. And there's a minimum public float level. So at least 10% of the shares must be available to the public, whereas for the Russell 2000, I think it's just 5%. So there's lots of these different filters which are in place to make you think the S&P 600 should have higher quality companies. But does that play out in better returns? My intuition would be that it would outperform simply because it's going to weed out the no-hopers. And recent history certainly bears that out. But I should say, as a caveat, this is data from S&P, who creates the S&P 600. Yeah, when I looked for the data of which is better, S&P 600 or Russell 2000, the first links on Google are all from S&P. But then I guess if it was outperforming, they would shout about it and Russell wouldn't. (laughs) So there was a study that looks at the rolling returns from 1993 to 2019. So it's quite a long period. And... For one-year rolling periods, the S&P 600 outperformed the Russell 2000 around 68% of the time. And if you extend that rolling period, it actually outperforms quite a lot more. So if you look at three-year periods, 
the S&P 600 wins 93% of the time, and for five-year periods, 98% of the time. That's pretty shocking, isn't it, the difference? So maybe you chose the right one, Roman. I hope so. Or <laughs> well, it certainly doesn't feel like that at the moment. Yeah, but whenever you buy something, it's always going to go down to begin with, isn't it? Yeah, it's a universal law. And there have been several studies that looked at, well, why does the S&P 600 beat the Russell 2000? And most of them seem to put it down to that profitability filter. So, for example, there's a study in 2009 by Dash and So, and a later study by the same authors in 2014, which found that, yeah, whatever you want to call it, profitability or quality filter, it seems to help. You just don't want to say the name Brzezink. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he was on the 2014 study. He doesn't get enough credit, does he, old Brzezink? Another one of the graphs from Yardini is very beautiful. And this one shows you the forward PE ratios for the S&P 600 versus the Russell 2000. Now, the Russell 2000 is still quite expensive. It's at 21.2 times forward earnings. Of course, a lot of those companies will have negative earnings. So these are some companies, I guess, with almost zero earnings, where the multiple is going to be almost infinite. How do they account for that, though? Do they say if your company's got negative earnings, then it takes it off the aggregated earnings for the index? Or do they just like not look at that company? Yeah, they have to take it out. And on this graph, it's kind of interesting that in 2020, they had to cap it at 35 times forward earnings for the Russell 2000, because it just went way off the graph. But that itself tells you something, which is that these small caps, when there is a kind of period of euphoria, they do incredibly well relative to their lousy profitability. Yeah, they are very cyclical, aren't they? And as you said earlier, really sensitive to economic data and sentiment, I presume. And I've heard it said that the time to get into small caps is early in the cycle. It's after the recession's been and when the market's tearing upwards again. Either after or just in the middle of during the worst point of the recession. I mean, you never know when the worst point is. It's just when people just don't even consider buying them. Yeah, if we could invest with hindsight, this is what we would want to do. You see, what I was hoping was that there would be a US recession. You know, all of these indicators were flagging that the US should have a recession, but it never really has, at least not in all of the data. I mean, it's kind of a semi-recession. Kind of a selfish hope, isn't it, to hope for a recession? (laughs) Well, I suppose so. But, uh, you know, it's good in a way because it does clear the air, kind of like a thunderstorm. And the thunderstorm was going to kick your small caps into life, was it? Well, I just thought that would be the kind of entry point that would be best. But of course, it never really happened. So I just thought, fine, I'll I'll buy them. The valuation's low. We're not going to get a recession. So of course, now there's probably going to be one. I mean, the fact is that small caps have just done very badly in the last few months. So we know that the stock market as a whole has been falling since early summer. That's true of S&P 500 and everything else. But small caps seem to have fallen a bit more. So while the S&P 500 is down around 7% over the last few months, the Russell 2000 is down 11% since its recent peak in July, and it dropped by 7% in September alone, and it's now almost 30 percentage points below its all-time high from 2021, which is, you know, far more than the large caps. Now, another thing I've been talking about is the deteriorating credit conditions in the United States and the fact that we're probably going to get higher default rates And that's because of higher funding costs. Now, of course, if you look at small companies, they're going to have a lower credit rating than Exxon or one of the large caps. And of course, if that's the case, then they're going to be at the sharp end of interest rate rises. At the moment, it's still the case that credit spreads 
which are the additional interest that you pay for having poor credit quality, is not very large. Those credit spreads are still quite tight. However, what I suspect is going to happen is as the default rates pick up, we're going to see those credit spreads widen as well. So that'll be a double whammy for these companies in terms of the cost of funding. And that's credit spreads on corporate bonds, right? But it's interesting that a lot of the small caps actually use bank loans as well. They're not just reliant on the corporate bond market. And what's particularly worrying, I guess, for the Russell 2000 is that 30% of their total debt is floating rate. So it's immediately picking up those higher interest rates that are coming through. Whereas for the large caps, for the S&P 500, according to Goldman Sachs, only 6% is floating rate. So it would seem that small caps get hammered by higher interest rates much quicker than the large caps. And another thing which I'm always rabbiting on about, and which seems quite obscure, but in this case isn't, is a senior loan officer's survey, the SLUS survey, which the Fed also talks about, because that tells you about bank lending, and they are tightening credit conditions still. That means for these companies, it's harder to get loans, and if they do get loans, it's going to cost them more. Mm. I saw that the FT reported that for the S&P 600, so this is the one with the quality filter even, the interest expense per share has actually hit a record, and it's really surged over the last six months. Yeah, I can see the graph goes back to 95, and there just hasn't been a period when it's been this expensive since then. And I know that the FT flagged up that for large caps, yeah, their interest expense is going up as well, but they also often have big cash piles, which they're now earning more interest on, so it kind of offsets it, whereas the small caps don't tend to have a lot of cash on hand, and they're just seeing more money go out of the door in interest payments. So really, I guess these small companies are hoping that economic activity won't be negatively impacted, that this recession will be a non-event, and that things will start to improve. We could be at the nadir, right? It's always going to feel like this just before it's about to turn around. And this is the point. You have to kind of choose a point where nobody else would consider buying what you're buying. It's got to be contrarian. Otherwise, you know, by the time you pile in, It's going to be in the FT, it's going to be in Bloomberg, and it'll be too late. It's already in the FT, and it still looks cheap, right? So (laughs) we've got no excuses if it rallies from here. (laughs) There were so many warning signs that small caps were undervalued. The other thing people point to is the sectoral composition of the indices. So the small cap index has a lot of regional banks in it, which have been wobbling. And that's probably bad news because the commercial real estate shakeout is also going to affect those regional banks. A lot of those commercial real estate loans were made by regional banks. So if that is a problem, then we're going to get a secondary impact on those small cap banks. And it's also the case, isn't it, that the economic conditions we've been in, where inflation's been high, especially the wage pressure in the US has been really high, right? That probably hits small companies harder because they're often in much more aggressive competition with other companies. You obviously don't have a monopoly if you're a small company. And you're often working with smaller margins than, you know, your Googles or whoever. So it's quite easy to wipe out that profit margin if your staff come to you for a 15% pay rise. But I always think that if you have a small company, it's more kind of family-like in the sense that you know people. You know, the CEO is going to know all of the members of staff. And hopefully there'll be this better relationship so that when it comes to wage rises, there'll be more understanding from the management. For me, that's a massive red flag. If you work for a company, I say, we're like a family here. (laughs) Are we? Are we really? Daddy's got all the money. (laughs) Yeah. Am I inheriting what's coming down the line? (laughs) 
but also more understanding on that on the part of the employees because if you milk the company dry you're not going to have a job but it plays out in the stats when you look at profit margins so the S&P 500 average profit margin is 12.8% what do you think it is for the S&P 600 the small caps well averting my eyes from the graph in front of me uh less <laughs> yeah about half as much 6.4% that is shockingly different isn't it yeah, much smaller margins. And that means there's much less buffer, isn't there, effectively? Like you said at the start, weaker balance sheets. It's amazing. If you look at different sectors, then these differences in margins are just absolutely amazing. So I guess for these small caps, so much of their profit goes back into the company to try and grow, that that's going to reduce their margins. And there's one other point which I've seen mentioned when it comes to the small cap indices, is that over the last few decades, we really have seen the rise of private equity. And maybe they've gone in and cherry picked out the best small caps, literally gone in and bought them and taken them private. And therefore, what's left in the S&P 600 or the Russell 2000 is kind of the things that private equity didn't want. So what you're saying is I've bought the dregs. Is that what you're saying? Well, I've, I've seen it said. <laughs> I'm just making the point. <laughs> What do you think, though? Is it an argument that has some validity to it? Yeah, I suppose private equity is going to cherry pick. There's no question about that. But do they do a good job of cherry picking? Because I'm not sure about that. If they're just picking it random, then it doesn't matter, does it? Well, usually they have sector preferences. So they'll, you know, they'll be an expert in restaurants. They'll find restaurant companies which are doing not so well right now. They'll turn it around. But have they got enough capital to suck out all of the good companies in the Russell 2000? I think probably not. But if they could find the needles, it would make a big difference because the return of small cap indices is driven by a few big winners, I think. Yeah, maybe. And I think it would require some kind of catalyst to turn a company around. So if they are really good, as they say, yeah, maybe that's true. Because if you were looking for an argument which says... Yes, small cap indices, by historical standards, they do look cheap. You know, there's no denying it. Whether you look at price to book or forward price to earnings ratio, they look cheap. But what if they don't mean revert because something's changed? And what might have changed is like the good companies have been sucked out of the index. But it might be that the management also is reluctant to be taken over by a private equity firm. But I think ultimately there will be a resistance to that. Yeah, I don't actually buy this argument. I've just seen it being made in quite a few places. Okay, so just to wrap up, we've spoken a lot about the US because, you know, it's such a big market and the data is so easily accessible. But what about small caps outside the US? Do they look cheap? It's funny, if you look at market cap ranges for the UK compared to the US, the UK large caps actually look a little bit like the mid caps in the US. There's a pretty big overlap. Because we don't have such big companies. Right, so are you saying that every index outside of the US is kind of a small cap index? (laughs) (laughs) Given that the whole UK market's the size of Apple. But when you're constructing a small cap indices, are you not sort of adjusting for the size of companies in each market? Yeah, I mean, it's all relative, isn't it? But for the UK, as for the US, you've got mostly domestic companies, mostly companies you've never heard of. And as with the US small caps, there's a worry about economic exposure to just one country. And I think in the UK, that's a bigger worry, simply because the UK's economic strength is so much less than that in the United States. In a way, that's maybe the biggest difference, isn't it, between the big companies and the small ones, is that the small ones are reliant almost always 
overwhelmingly on their domestic market for sales. And you can probably guess what I bought today. Don't tell me UK small caps. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) What happened? Did you press the wrong button? No, 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 no. This is a thing I've just been building recently, which is I'm trying to do a filter for small caps because there wasn't a small cap value index for the UK. So I just rolled my own. So I've got a filter that looks for small caps with value and momentum. So it's a combination of three factors. There can't be many left with those three filters. Yeah, it's like 15 companies. That's all right. Don't put too much money in this. I'm just going to warn you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, obviously, I'd be cautious about it. But I just thought it'd be kind of interesting to see how well it performs. Yeah, you're becoming a fund manager. No. I always do this to remind myself that I wouldn't be a good fund manager. So let's look at what an actual fund manager has said. So if we look at Man Group, which is a hedge fund, they've got an interesting piece of research around small caps outside the US. And they have their own valuation measure, which is price divided by earnings to growth. They call it the PEG ratio. And by this measure, global small caps excluding the US actually look the cheapest of any segment. Cheaper than the S&P 500, obviously, but also cheaper than small caps in the US. And the UK is cheap, but these small caps look super cheap for the UK because nobody wants this market. Large UK fund managers can't touch these either. So really, it's kind of the unloved of the unloved, the dregs of the dregs. Or I shouldn't say that, I guess, because I bought them. But (laughs) yeah, if we're here in a year or two's time, and it's done really well. I'll give you all the permission to gloat about it. If obviously, if they've done really badly, we'll never mention it again. (laughs) Of course. I mentioned how having a small company produces a family atmosphere. Well, that's pretty much the atmosphere, I think, in our community in Pensioncraft. We help each other learn, and it's very supportive. So if you want to learn more about investing, then check us out. Just go to pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is how big can one company grow? Because we've been talking about small caps a lot, But what's the opposite end of the spectrum? And everyone's talking about mega caps right now and how huge Apple is. But there are limits, physical limits almost, on how large a company can grow. For example, if it's outstripping GDP growth, its earnings growth, then at a certain point, that company will become the economy. Yeah, if you sort of extrapolate it out and it's growing exponentially, (laughs) then yeah, the US becomes Apple. And at a certain point, politicians are going to get threatened by this. So we saw this in the past. We saw companies getting broken up. AT&T, for example, just got so big that it had a huge monopoly. So at that point, the government stepped in and split it up into the baby bells. And the same happened with the Standard Oil Company, didn't it, at the start of the 20th century? In 1890, Standard Oil controlled 88% of the refined oil flows in the United States. You don't get much more of a monopoly than that. So this was John D. Rockefeller's racket. Who was among the richest people in modern history. And Standard Oil was the largest petroleum company in the world. But then, like you say, that makes people nervous and regulators stepped in. And then in 1911, the Supreme Court ruled that it was a monopoly, obviously, and broke it up into 43 different companies, all with different boards of directors. The biggest two were Standard Oil of New Jersey, which then became Exxon, and Standard Oil of New York, which became Mobil. But then it's funny to see that those two merged in 1999. Yeah, when it wasn't going to be too big again. <laughs> so it took almost 100 years and they said, ah, oh, back together you go. 
But it is interesting in that these companies are super successful, so successful that it becomes almost like a cancer. It grows too quickly and the organism in which it lives just can't survive as a separate entity. Do you think that capitalism just tends towards monopolies? That's why you need regulators. If they didn't step in, we'd just end up with a winner takes all. It certainly seems to be that way. Certainly in tech, it seems as if companies like Microsoft, they have to have something stand in their way in order to not dominate completely. So how big can a company get? Like, what's the biggest company that's ever existed? I was shocked to read about this because (laughs) I had no idea. I knew that the Dutch East India Company was absolutely huge compared to the Netherlands, which, you know, you look at a map of the world and you look at the Netherlands and it's absolutely tiny. It makes the UK look big. It was so small, they had to, you know, reclaim land from the sea. They had nowhere to live. I love Holland, though. But, But still... If you inflation adjust the size of the Dutch East India Company, and I think this was in 2019 dollars, it would be just over $8 trillion in terms of market cap. As a market cap, that's insane. That's like grouping up the mega cap eight we mentioned earlier into one company. It's like Apple, Amazon, Google, Tesla all being one company. That's how big it was. Because now companies are really struggling to reach the one trillion mark. So eight trillion. And it was well past 8 trillion. It blew to 8.3. And that's in 2019 dollars. We've had a bit more inflation. Yeah. So that's going to be even bigger. So one of the interesting things about the Dutch East India Company is it was the first company to ever offer shares to the public. It was formed in 1602 by the government of the Netherlands, who kind of established it and then granted it a monopoly, a 20-year monopoly on trade with the East Indies and sovereign rights in any newly discovered territories. It's quite nice, isn't it? If you can just claim a territory as a company. Now, I saw on Twitter that it was the first company to pay dividends, and it paid them in spices. So you could get a discount if you bought mace. Amazing. Because I read that from 1679 to 1772, the company paid a regular dividend that yielded between 12 and 40%. That would go into your dividend portfolio. I mean, it's the only stock you can buy, right? It's the only publicly listed stock in the world at that point, but still. Amazing. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) We'll leave it in. But what happened to it? Same thing that happens to every company eventually. Competition and corruption apparently eroded its value and its monopoly, and it was formally dissolved around 1800. But you look at the wealth of the Netherlands relative to other countries, and it's still considerable. So that money didn't disappear. A lot of that capital is still sloshing around. But that's about as big as it can get, right? The Dutch East India Company. And no company today is quite on that scale. But we do have a situation now where concentration and the size of companies in the economy is bigger than it's probably been in around 100 years. You have to go back to the early 20th century to find similar concentration. And the way it usually ends is that those companies have been somehow overvalued and they do shrink relative to the rest of the market. One demonstration of the fact we have really high concentration is that profit margins are higher than they've been in you know, decades and decades, for the large caps, I mean. Yeah, because more competition probably means smaller margins and less profitability. And always there are disruptions to any market. It could be the government stepping in to break up a monopoly, or it could be simply that the company goes off the boil. So at a previous peak in concentration for the US market in March of 2000, just after the bubble burst, the largest companies then were Microsoft, Cisco, General Electric, which certainly lost its mojo. Never heard of it. Intel, 
and Exxon. So for various reasons, all of those have become less important. Even Microsoft looked like it was going that way, didn't it? But it's really turned itself around. Yeah. I mean, just theoretically, what is the kind of upper limit of company growth? Because there are things like the Buffett indicator, aren't there, which compares the size of the US stock market to the size of the US economy. And it's one indicator of if the stock market's got ahead of itself, if it looks too big in comparison to GDP. And I guess nowadays, given the global nature of markets, you'd need to think about global GDP. So that's probably what you'd compare it to. What total market cap of all the companies in the world versus the total GDP of the whole world? I think that would make more sense. Or at least if it was a US index, you'd compare it with global GDP, because a lot of those companies will be exporting globally. And maybe soon we'll have to look at solar system GDP. Who knows? Then the sky's the limit. You in science fiction, Michael. <laughs> no. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.